For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, stress, depression, anxiety, and sadness. Consider how much of your weekly conversation might revolve around those feelings. Now ask yourself, how much do you, your family and friends, talk about coping and finding positive ways to deal with difficult emotions? Next, we'll talk to people around Tucson about how they cope in this special edition of Arizona Spotlight. The first place I went to talk to Tucsonans about coping was ArtWorks. It's an all-day program for adults with developmental disabilities. Guided by director Yumi Shirai and her team, about two dozen participants express themselves through mediums including painting, printmaking, sculpture, and dance. The atmosphere there is positive and supportive, something you'll hear reflected in this conversation. Okay, hi, my name is Cody Kelly. I'm 25 years old. I'm diagnosed as autism. That happens when I was like either a baby or three years old. And um, and also when I was on my teen years, I was diagnosed with disorganized schizophrenia, a psychotic mental illness where I see things that I didn't see, touch things that I didn't touch and hear voices. Do you take medication for this, Cody? I did take medication for this. You seem like you're really comfortable talking to me right now. Mm-hmm. I still like talking to people even when I'm feeling sad or stressed, and including my mom to talk to. Is your mom the, the person that's easiest for you to talk to? Yeah, she's the easy to talk to. And also, my caseworkers and my friends and, and all of my friends, both at the Behavioral Health and Artworks, we're here with our friend Brad, who's joined us. And so let's say Brad came to you and said that he was upset or that he was feeling sad about something. Do you have any advice that you would want to give him? Do you have something that helps you when you feel sad? You know, I think I would uh, hug him if he's feeling sad and telling him to do something different and find a more relaxing artwork that will make him feel comfortable. Something that might help him get his mind off of it. Yeah, something that got his mind off of it. Exercise really helps. I did went out for walks all the time and also did some stretching exercises too. Other people may not understand exactly what you go through. I just want to know like how you might deal with negative feelings, bad feelings that might build up inside you. Mm. Oh, I did use my coping skills by doing self-talk to myself that I'm really going to have a good day and that the voices aren't the ones who talk to me and I'm in charge of myself and I choose whatever I like to choose. Yeah, You make yourself the most important voice. Yeah, I make myself the most important voice. That's great. That's really good. Brad, what do you think? Do you think Cody did a good job? Yes. <laughs> Can you tell me something about coping with bad feelings? My paintings. Paintings. Painting. Yeah. Yeah, so artwork helps, huh? Yeah, it helps. 
Hi, my name is Victoria Donna Pisano. I really love artworks a lot. When I first got the tour of artworks, I was here in 2013. Since we're talking about coping and sadness, that's a tough subject, but can you think of a way that you deal with bad feelings that helps you? I feel sad because I lost my mother of breast cancer and it really hurts me a lot. How do you think, though, that you've been dealing with it? Because I came in today and you greeted me with this big smile and you said, hi, I'm Vicki, and we shook hands. So I know that it doesn't bother you all the time. What's a way that you think you've dealt with losing your mother? I like talking about it so I can let everything go away. Who do you have to talk to about it? I talk to Yumi and Mary Lou and my teacher Elizabeth about it and my mom and my dad. You have a stepmom, maybe? Is yeah, that what you mean? Yeah, I have a stepmom. If somebody came to you here at Artworks and told you that they were feeling sad or that they were having trouble facing a problem, can you think what you might tell them? I was going to say for, for advice that um, please just be happy and enjoy life because I hope you're a wonderful person and I hope you will enjoy life. And you're just saying that to everybody right now? Is that, is that what you meant when you said you're a wonderful person? Yes. Well, that was a nice message. Thank you very much, Victoria. You're welcome. Thanks to Cody, Bradley, and Vicki for sharing their thoughts. Artworks is part of the University of Arizona's College of Family and Community Medicine. The Artworks artists are preparing new works for their annual public gallery show called Through Our Eyes that's coming in November. Every week in Tucson, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, hosts meetings for people living with mental illness. In a moderated discussion, the group works towards a united goal of improving their mental health. I joined a NAMI peer group meeting at Hope Incorporated, a community enrichment center near Country Club and Speedway, and I asked some of those in attendance to share the methods that they rely on to help them cope. Uh, my name is Stephen. I live with bipolar one, panic disorder, um, and OCD. A good coping skill for me is um, having a dog, a very supportive dog that wakes me up in the morning and uh, wants a walk. And uh, I have to get up and it's great to get out and uh, visit with the neighbors. Talking seems to take me away from um, my mental illness. So reaching out to people and people that you can trust. You, know, you need to find a good friend base to trust. Hi, I'm Susie, and I've been diagnosed with bipolar 2, PTSD, and generalized anxiety. I really unfortunately overanalyze and scrutinize everything. So um, right now, actually, one of the kind of breakthroughs that I've had is to not respond to subtext because it's a tool that you use to protect yourself when you're dealing with unstable people in your life but it can become harmful for you and toxic for you going forward when people are not like that. And so it's actually more healthy for me to not engage in that subtext. In a very short amount of time, it's helped tremendously. But it's tricky. It is very tricky to kind of figure out how to healthfully um, not respond to subtext, you know, and still give credence to things when they need to be. I'm Peter, and uh, I live with major depression. I don't like to say I suffer from it. I just live with it. So the thing that helps me the most is to think about the fact that this is temporary 
And I, I try to focus on a point in my life where I'll look back at all of this and go, well, that happened and I survived. You know, they say suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And I try to remind myself all the time that this too shall pass. You know, our, our minds are these time travelers. They go forward in the future full of anxiety and they go back into the past full of regret. And the best thing you can do is realize that this is the only moment you have right now. All of that, you know, that's a figment of your imagination, essentially. It's, it's just your imagination run amok. For me, I find what's most helpful is actually to think about what does my butt feel like in my chair? What do these clothes feel like on my body? You know, something physical to ground me in the world that I'm in now so I can be back in the present where I can actually be effective at dealing with things. Hi, my name's Andrew. I have bipolar one disorder with psychotic features. One of the 12 step programs that I'm a part of taught me to uh, recognize when something's unmanageable. So when something's unmanageable, you can seek help. Besides uh, seeking professional help and going to support groups like NAMI, I would say be positive, you know, staying positive and remembering that, you know, no matter how uh, tough it gets, you know, there's always the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, my name's Athena. Um, I have depression, anxiety, and PTSD. It kind of depends on the trigger for me, at least. Um, I do have medication, um, but if I don't use that, um, I will use word searches, which is <laughs> kind of, I don't know, it works for me. Um, I just get like little cheap ones from like Walmart or something. It's just really good to distract myself, especially at work when I get, because I get anxious at work sometimes. So it's just something to like kind of help distract me. It just kind of keeps my mind occupied. And so when it's not occupied, then I just have like a lot of like anxious thoughts or like negative self-talk and stuff. So it's a good distraction. <laughs> Those voices came to us from NAMI, Southern Arizona, part of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. They offer support, resources, and understanding. You can contact them at namisa.org. To get a professional perspective on how people can make healthier choices when dealing with their problems, AZPM's mental health reporter Gisela Tellis talked with David Sabara, a professor in the University of Arizona Department of Psychology. His research has focused on things that are difficult to cope with, including divorce, and the approaches that people most commonly apply to self-care. First of all, let's define coping. What are we talking about when we're talking about coping? We're talking about any set of behaviors, and behaviors are thoughts that occur in the head too, right? So things we might do outwardly and thoughts and, and feelings we might have that help us manage real or perceived stressors. So if my car breaks down, I need to cope with that. If I'm stuck in traffic, I need to cope with that. The end of marriage is something you're coping with in all kinds of different ways. Most people are primarily coping with marital difficulties or relationship difficulties to begin with, and then also managing transition out of their home and, and separating intertwined lives together. So there's a lot of different components or, or moving parts to coping with that difficult experience. In your research, what have you found to be good coping skills that lead to positive long-term outcomes? We've heard so much, and, and probably all your listeners know a lot about this idea of mindfulness. Why is mindfulness so popular? Do you ever, if you've ever stopped to think about, like, why is everyone talking about mindfulness? 
there's a real key here to our emotional well-being related to that. And that is, you know, mindfulness is typically defined as, say, having a non-judgmental present moment awareness. So being able to anchor yourself in the present moment without pushing your experience away and avoiding it or without taking your experience and totally glomming onto it. And so one of the things that we've really focused on is different uh, uh, behaviors that cultivate mindfulness. So uh, one topic in particular is this idea of self-compassion, that a lot of people after their separation experience get very down on themselves. They get, you know, they can become depressed, but most of the time they're just distraught about how their relationship has ended, what's wrong with them, why couldn't they have done better, and sort of have a lot of regrets about the things they did or didn't do. Self-compassionate perspective is one that holds your experiences a little more lightly with a little more tenderness or kindness to your own experiences. And embedded in that is instead of getting caught up in the story of terribleness or the story of blame is to just locate your experience right back to the present moment. So, you know, to really sort of take notice of your body and what your body is doing rather than drift off and get stuck in jealousy or those kinds of things. And then the other part of self-compassion is really to locate your experience as part of all human experience. So try to connect with something that is broader than you. And And that's sort of a way of thinking about things to understand that your experience is part of a universal experience and that other people have gone through this and been okay and other people have been left or have been the lever and had to make tough decisions, that is a very powerful uh, way to help people through. And so we've studied how people develop self-compassion and, and basically who is and who isn't able to look at their experience a little more lightly. We hear about mindfulness and we hear about self-compassion, but these feel like lofty things. So they feel like they're complex and hard to pin down. Like in practical terms, what does employing those strategies for your your own problems in your own life look like? Sure. Let me give you an example. When my children were very young and uh, they went to preschool, people started finding out that I studied divorce. And close to 50% of marriages end in divorce. Soon enough, there were a divorce as at the preschool and parents would take me aside and ask me questions about things they should do to help them cope so this woman came up to me and I'm overwhelmed with jealousy like incredibly jealous about this experience and and you know my husband had had an affair and I said well what do you do when you get jealous what are you doing she says well I take the phone and I text him I text him to see what he's doing. And if he replies, at least I know he's not like off having his affair. And I was like, maybe maybe texting him is not the right thing. Just sort of very curiously walking through that. But the example is that how do you translate mindfulness into real life is that when the, the feelings of jealousy come up, you don't need to react to them. You don't need all your behavior to be driven by them. Emotions, feelings are like waves. They come and go. And part of a more mindful experience, more present-oriented experience is letting them pass without reacting to them. And I think where things get complicated for people is that emotion comes up and they often respond and their behavior is driven by that. My colleague Mark has been talking to lots of people for this episode about how they cope. And what came up a lot were the simple things, sitting in a room and breathing or going for a walk, going for a run. Why is it so difficult to sort of incorporate those those simple things into our lives that help us to stop and ride out that wave of emotion? 
what happens to a lot of people is that there's a tremendous amount of routine disruption when big events happen to us. A big part of it is reestablishing routines that make us feel balanced, that, that help calm us. So the simple things, just putting them in place, really do help establish a regularity and order to our lives. And I think those really matter. Why those simple things are hard for people is we get caught up in the very practical things of a lot of different stressors. If you have a severe mental illness, for example, and you're trying to cope with that, one of the most important things is having access to medical care. And you may spend an inordinate amount of time pursuing opportunities, access, where can you get services. So there are a lot of logistical things to do. And so coping and taking self-care falls away pretty quickly in a lot of these circumstances, but vitally important, vitally important. You know, say you have a friend who's going through one of these objectively difficult situations. They've lost a loved one. A loved one is sick. They're going through a divorce. What advice would you give them for how to cope with that? Well, the first piece of advice is to is really a piece of support. It's to normalize their experience and to help them understand that there's a natural period of grief and mourning that follows any of these kinds of experiences. It's good for people to hear this, that there is a period of time in which you may feel all kinds of different things. And you may feel happy, you may feel sad, you may feel uh, a regret, you may feel freedom, and you may feel those emotions all in the course of an hour and cycle back and forth and then wonder what's really wrong with you. And part of that is just allowing your experiences to be as they are without judging them, without trying to push them away, without grabbing them and going deeper and deepening them. So that would be the first part is just that's grief. And, and that's pretty normal and very healthy. And then the question is, like, at what period in time do you start reestablishing your routines? You know, when, when some of that emotional intensity subsides, you want to make sure that you're taking care of yourself in, a good, in the best possible way. So doing all the kinds of self-care things you were doing before and trying to, you know, re-engage with your life as it was. So you start putting the pieces back together. And then you also start have, have to start thinking about, who you are as a person following this difficult event, right? You know, if it's the loss of a loved one, our identities are completely tied up in the people we associate with. So who are you without this person? What's your life like without this person? And, you know, that's the case where a lot of you know, therapy can be helpful and those kinds of things. But those pieces of allowing and, and normalizing of reestablishing routines and then exploring pieces of identity are some of the things we've learned about divorce, but they're pretty uh, universal in terms of a lot of difficult experiences. Gisela Tellis spoke with Dr. David Sabara from the UA Department of Psychology. Unconditional love, family, people who come into your life that you want to stay forever, making a difference, traveling, the appearance of a long-forgotten memory that makes you laugh out loud. Every Brilliant Thing, a one-man show with a little music, is by UK playwright Duncan McMillan. It has made a strong impression on the world's theatrical community since it debuted in 2014. In McMillan's own words, the play was meant to say, You're not alone. You're not weird. You will get through it. You just have to hold on. The Arizona premiere of the play is running now in Tucson at Live Theater Workshop. I went backstage to talk with the star and the director about every brilliant thing. My name is Steve Wood, 
And I've been performing at Life Theater Workshop for over 10 years now. Um, and I do about three or four main stages a year here at the theater. What is it that makes this play different from what you've done before? Well, number one is I get to connect with Live Theater Workshop audiences in a different way than I've ever had the opportunity to do before. I get to be with them before the show, during the show, and after the show, and I get to know some of the most loyal uh, season ticket holders and patrons of the theater, which I recognize by face but never by name, so it's a real treat that I get to do that this time. It's, it's real nice. Well, how does that work? How does this production allow for that interaction? The way that the script is set up, it involves the audience on an intimate level in that they participate with me to tell the story. So throughout the pre-show, I'm handing out numbers from the list of every brilliant thing that I created. Um, that the character created. That the character created, yes. And throughout the show, I call out those numbers. And if the audience member has the number that I call out, they read the list entry that's printed on the card, and it helps move the story forward, and it binds the audience together in this singular experience. It's really unique. Well, I want to know what's on those cards. What are some of the brilliant things we're talking about? Well, they're all brilliant. There's not one that's a favorite. Uh, they're all equally great, but some that really stand out. Peeing in the sea and nobody knows the even-numbered Star Trek films, <laughs> hairdressers that listen to what you want. That's a good one. <laughs> I think we can all relate to that one. So all of the list items are relatable and are things that people might take for granted, you know, the little things in life, and that's what makes this show really beautiful. What is it that leads your character to compile this list? Why do this? My character starts the list when he's seven, and he does so on the basis that dad picks him up from school, which is already unusual because mom usually picks him up from school. And all my character is given is the information that mom has done something stupid. And uh, my character does not know what that means. So he starts to make a list of every brilliant thing, everything that's brilliant about the world to help mom get through what she's going through. And then throughout his life, the list continues to grow throughout his marriage and so on throughout his life. The list continues to grow. Give me an idea of where an audience member might be emotionally when they leave this play. Well, they're going to feel how I felt when I first read the script. They're going to feel uplifted, and they're going to leave the theater wanting to go home and hug their friends and family and laugh and think about everything in their life that's truly brilliant. And it, it, it's really motivational. It's very uplifting. Um, and I can't think of a better way to spend an evening. They're just going to leave happy as happy as could be. Spending an evening with every brilliant thing? Yes, indeed. I can't wait for them to come see it. My name is Sabian Trout, and I've been the artistic director for Live Theater Workshop for 12 years. I have kind of a romantic vision of the life of a director that while you're not actually doing the work in the theater, you're surrounded by plays, and you're reading plays, and you're looking all the time for the next play. How did Every Brilliant Thing rise to the top? Your vision of what a director does, and particularly what an artistic director does, is, is spot on. Because if you saw my living room, it's piles and piles and piles of plays. And I'm constantly looking to see what other professional theaters across the nation and around the world are doing. 
And this play has garnered uh, quite a bit of critical acclaim and is potentially the most produced play in the United States right now. Uh, we are doing the Arizona premiere of it, and I feel very fortunate that we are in that position. It has a very topical story uh, that I think is meaningful and makes a difference in the community, which is one of the main things we're interested in here at Life Theater Workshop. And across generations, across race, across gender, I think it's something that uh, people find compelling and need to hear. It's in a package that is uplifting, funny, uh, interactive, a completely different theatrical dynamic than anything that I've ever seen produced, let alone produced myself at Life Theater Workshop. It's a great story, well told in an interesting envelope. Steve told me that the audience plays an important role in this play and that there's more interactivity than you might think of. So what does that mean to you as a director? How do you go about directing the audience? I think one of the things that's very important and different about this play is that the house lights stay on and the members of the audience can see each other throughout the play and become bonded as a group. And that group experience and that awareness of one another and how one another are reacting to the play is something that's vital, crucial, in fact, to uh, to the resonance of the play. And it's a device, a theatrical device, that one could refer to as being Brechtian, which, which is in reference to the playwright Bertolt Brecht. One of the primary guiding Brechtian principles was for audience members to not get lost in the story, meaning they stop thinking and become submerged in the tale of the story, but instead constantly st stay self-aware with their brain stimulated thinking and thinking about how what's being told on stage applies to their own lives. And I think that is one of the key driving elements in terms of the success of the play, why the play does not become maudlin, although it does have a uh, perhaps for some people, what could be thought of as a, as a sad theme, the play is never sad. The play is instead happy, uplifting, life-affirming, joyous. And I think a lot of it has to do with that Brechtian element. Every Brilliant Thing, starring Steve Wood and directed by Sabian Trout, has weekend performances at the Live Theater Workshop through October 6th. Guests are invited to share their own brilliant things, so let's keep the list growing, Tucson. By the end of the play's first year in the UK, it had far surpassed 999,000 things. Thank you for listening to this special edition of Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.